Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Jimmy Wright, president at JDub Enterprises, a private firm focused on minerals management for small individual minerals owners. During the episode, Jimmy walks through all things minerals management and shares the perspective of individual mineral owners and their common questions, concerns, and the best ways to interact with them if you're trying to buy their minerals. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Jimmy had to say. All right, Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thanks for coming on. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. So I, I think today's going to be interesting. You know, you're you're out in Midland. You're working with a lot of minerals owners, landowners, a lot on the minerals management side and kind of working with them through the management of their estates and kind of the day-to-day challenges. So you can put us in the mindset of what's going on with, with these individuals. I think a lot of my audience is buying from these types of individuals, working with them. And so I think you being more direct and working with them on a day-to-day basis will be great insight. But before we do that, who are you? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How'd you get in oil and gas? Why'd you pick land? Over sure. to you to, to take it away. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, first, again, thanks so much for having me on here. Really appreciate it. The kind of 32nd elevator pitch of my history. I grew up in Amarillo, Texas, out in the panhandle. Uh, My father was a helicopter mechanic, so I didn't know anything about oil and gas, except I needed to put it in my car. Uh, when I was growing up. And so uh, I went to college at Southwestern University down in Georgetown, Texas, just north of Austin. And uh, while I was there, I uh, I joined the military uh, when I was in college and uh, had a, a girlfriend whose dad was a landman that has now become my wife and father-in-law. And uh, while I was in the army, you know, being broke, kind of realized, what am I going to do? How am I going to provide for my family? All that kind of stuff. My now father-in-law said, hey, I think you'd be a great fit for this industry. Uh, there's a real need for people. We have a shortage in the industry. And uh, so I got started, started working for a broker down in South Texas. Then I moved in-house and kind of bounced around, lived in Midland for a long time, working my way up through different companies, you know, Energen and Callan and uh, uh, some uh, Kinder Morgan, some of those folks you've heard of, just kind of took it from there. Then we ended up, went off on our own in uh, 2014. We sold our house, sold all our stuff, went on a big RV trip, cross country, drove around for six months, homeschooled our kids. And uh, if you remember that time, I, I left town and oil was, you know, $125 a barrel. And I came back and it was, you know, $35 a barrel. And I was like, come on, guys, I leave town. You let it all fall apart. Like, I got to <laughs> I gotta come back and fix things. What are we going to do? And, uh, you know, nobody was hiring. You know, but when we had left Midland, it was, you know, you could kind of trip and fall and make a million dollars. It seemed like everybody was hiring. Everybody was making big, big bucks. And uh, so I came back and I just started doing some day work for a buddy of mine. And then he said, hey, can you get some people? So I started a little brokerage. And then we started doing um, taking on clients who were um, mineral owners. And uh, they really that's been a fantastic pivot for me to be able to help mineral owners manage their assets, what they want to do, look what they're looking for, that kind of thing, get plugged into that space. So I've been on my own 
gosh, probably, I guess that's about eight years, almost nine years now. And uh, just really, really love doing that kind of work. And uh, we actually moved to Austin. I live in Austin now. We moved here, oh gosh, probably about six years ago. And uh, that's still the overall majority of my contacts and people I know are in the Permian, but I've got all kinds of clients with assets all over the place. And uh, it's been a, a really great, great fit for us. Fantastic. Well, firstly, thank you for your service. And, you know, I'd I'd love to jump into the minerals management side because there's a lot of interesting things, a lot of interesting discussions I've had in the last four years around minerals management. So we'll dive into that in a second. But, you know, kind of tangentially alongside your brokerage and land work, you've gotten involved in AAPL and and NARO. You're currently president of NARO Foundation. So describe really what NARO Foundation is. And then also, congratulations, you were named 2023 Lambman of the Year with AAPL. So that, that's, oh, thank that's you. phenomenal. So thank yeah, just you a so little much. background on those. Yeah, for sure. So uh, so NARO is the National Association of Royalty Owners. I currently serve on the board, on the national board. And I'm also, there's an affiliated association, affiliated to the association is the foundation. Um, and that is the 501c3 arm of the organization that manages the certification program and also allows individuals who want to make tax-advantaged charitable donations to the organization. That's the vehicle that allows individuals to donate their mineral rights to the organization, or if they want to make a cash donation to help support the education mission of NARO. So I serve as the president of the of the foundation, and we're responsible for, you know, reworking the, the certification program, the education elements, um, and managing the, the assets that are have been donated over the years to the association. And then as far as AAPL goes, it's a fantastic organization. I've been involved with them for a long time and a number of the local affiliated chapters. I'm the past president of the Austin Landman's Association. I'm currently serving as their director I serve on a handful of committees. Most recently, I served on the mentorship committee, helping connect younger uh, entry-level land professionals with more seasoned folks to help them navigate that. And you know, we the different pieces of the puzzle for these these organizations can fit together. And I'm a huge believer that the land professional's job is one of a liaison between the two the two pieces of the puzzle between the mineral owners and the operators and so that's a really important skill set that land professionals need to have is to understand that the mineral owner is the first business partner that the operator has and so it's that relationship can get adversarial and there's a lot of history of it having been adversarial but it doesn't have to be it should be collaborative and it should be on the same page right like mm-hmm. Both sides need each other. The, the mineral owner needs the operator. They don't have the, the risk appetite or the technical expertise to go in and, and develop these assets. Otherwise, everybody would drill their own oil wells. They wouldn't have an oil company, right? But on the other hand, the, the oil companies can't do anything if they don't have the proper legal rights from these property owners. So ultimately, it should be a collaborative and a positive relationship that, that you know, sometimes it gets it gets crossways. So those organizations, I think both the AAPL and NARO work to serve their members to, to help them better manage their assets and their perspectives and be able to work together. There's a lot of uh, overlap on that Venn diagram, so to speak, of those two groups. Very cool. And kudos to you too. Clearly, there's some 
philanthropic blood run through your veins, you know, on the foundation and, you know, the need to give back with mentorship. That's great. You know, my wife and I are very, very involved in a variety of things. You know, years ago, it's it's funny, you mentioned Nehra Foundation gets assets donated to them. You know, I was thinking a while back, it's one of those things that's kind of in the drawer and put away to revisit at a future date. But I thought if you could create, you know, uh, you raise money from corporates, and and that money would then be used to acquire minerals assets, legacy minerals assets, and then that income would be used for philanthropic purposes. And uh, corporate money is kind of flagged for philanthropy, so the idea would be this corporate money would be a very cheap cost of capital and could could compete at a high level in the marketplace to acquire really good assets, and you'd have you know a volunteer committee that would contribute various skill sets and then you have this uh this cause that's has replenishing revenue over time to continue to give back and do good anyways there's just an idea yeah. it's you know yeah. you guys in a sense have assets being given in kind and for the same type of purpose just different structure so it's, it's just cool to to hear but um i digress anyways but uh yeah no that's a great idea i think there's Everybody that's listening to this and is in this space understands there's such a prolific upside of uh, associated with mineral rights. And it's one of, if not the only assets I've been able to discover that is truly passive. I mean, literally, there are the overwhelming majority of mineral rights owners. All they do is cash a check. They literally don't do anything. It's just, you know, grandpa signed this lease 75 years ago. And so I get a check every month and I go cash it or set up on ACH direct deposit and it, the money just shows up. And uh, I don't advocate for that kind of management because it's very passive and you might be letting a lot of things fall through your cracks, but it's certainly possible. It's And uh, so there are some real opportunities for different investment funds and different charitable organizations to see these you know, it's almost like an annuity, right? This is just long-term cash flow that also has, you know, prolific upside whenever horizontal development happens to be on top of your, you know, this this, this shale boom totally changed it, right? And uh, those things can can still occur and, and yet undiscovered and undeveloped areas. No, for sure. And I think that's a perfect segue to go into the minerals management because you said it's very passive with an asterisk because there is yeah. some value creation with the right systems, technology, and and uh, expertise, really to know how to get things in pay status, how to negotiate leases when they renewed, et cetera. It depends on you know what you're dealing with families that may have surface and and other ways to monetize their resources, not purely minerals on the oil and gas front. But I'll um I'll take you back. It's 2020, and I started getting a lot when I started my podcast, I got a little bit more visibility. So I started to get some inbounds and a lot of folks kind of bouncing ideas off of me. It's one of the things I enjoy about my job the most, right? The smartest yeah. people on the on the cutting edge of all aspects of the space, I, I get a front row seat to on an ongoing basis. So minerals management came up a lot in 2020. And, you know, prior to that, there were some technologies that popped up, mineral soft and mineralware. Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, on the, the software automation side, make it more manageable for companies to manage the minerals. And I think they've furthered the ball down the field, but the general consensus of the space is it's still not perfect. It's, there isn't still a one fit solution. 
right. to minerals management there on the software side. Yep. And there's some others out there. I know Entertel's working on some stuff and I, I've heard they brought some new features to the table. But in general, when you look at traditional minerals management in banks and trusts, the overall the overwhelming consensus from the space is, you know, they are very passive in how they manage this stuff. And they're charging, you know, I don't want to speak for these firms because right. I don't know firsthand, but generally around 6% is market. And that's yep. a lot of money if you have a big re- recurring revenue stream. And so sure. a lot of folks, and, and I had um, Dick Jacobs on a couple of years ago. I posted the episode last year. Dick was essentially the grandfather and the creator of the minerals management space in, in banks. He started the first one in the 80s and then was in it for about a decade. I mean, the the largest minerals managers in the country today, right? Wells Fargo and JP Morgan, like he was at the genesis of all those. Mm-hmm. And then he got into the software side of the business and was very involved in minerals management for a couple of decades before retiring. So he had a lot of good insights. One of them, he said, you know, the way the trust base is set up, these managers are incentivized to do nothing. He said, if if they, they're, they're not incentivized really to grow anything significantly or to sell it, because if they sell it, AUM goes down. So as a fiduciary, in theory, you should do that. But there's a misalignment of incentives there because AUM goes down, you make less fees, right? Yeah. And then B, if you're trying to do something strategic and you're wrong in that world, he said your head gets chopped off. Yeah. So you're incentivized to just do nothing. Yeah. Put it in the drawer, cash the checks. Everyone's happy. You're No one asks questions, I should say. Not that everyone's happy. No one asks right. questions. Right. And so he said, you know, the only way to really unlock that is transparency through technology to where now the, the hand is forced to do something with those mineral assets and you can't just blindly, you know, cash the checks and say, you know, this is the fair market value and it's not really up to industry standard on how to value those. So, you know, that that's a really interesting side of it. There's to his estimate 10 to 11% of the minerals in the US locked up in trusts and basically cannot be touched. Right. So that's one aspect that's really interesting. The other is just and I don't know what other percentage or or kind of managed more broadly by these banks, but folks are saying if someone to come in and really kind of hands-on add tons of value with some elbow grease and, you know, fixed decimal interest and get stuff and pay, right. pay stats. I mean, we've all been out there. I've done it on smaller deals personally. And I know a lot of the firms listening, the beauty of buying minerals assets and they're in suspense for 24 months. And then you get that surprise check and you go, yeah, oh, baby, check. right? Yeah. Well, that, uh-huh. If you own it and you never know, I mean, that's your money when that's you're not right. seeing it. Yeah. So, that's, that, yeah, for sure. You're exactly right. And that's one of the things we talk about with our clients who are entertaining sales is, you know, you don't want to, from the other side, if you're the seller, you don't want to be selling your asset and they are paying you with your money for it, right? Like if I own these minerals and I have suspended funds and you contact me to buy my minerals and you throw a big number at me, well, that might dislodge my, oh my gosh, this is, you know, crazy walked in the door. I'm going to go ahead and sell this. I didn't know that, you know, my dead uncle Bill left this to me or whatever the story is, right? And then you use these funds that are already owed to me to buy my asset from me, right? And so one of the things I like to use is, you know, minerals, the mineral space is one of the only spaces in the world that I can think of that is seller beware, okay? It's not buyer beware, it's seller beware. Like you just need to know um, what you have. Uh, You need to be able to just ask these questions and be intelligent enough to know 
know, like, okay, do I need to check and see? Oh, yeah, there are 12 new horizontal permits on here. And that's why these, you know, offers are totally through the roof. And being able to become educated on that stuff on the front end, it's not that you're not willing to do the deal. Um, it's just you want to make sure you're getting a, you know, you only, I like to say you can share a sheep many times, but you can only scalp them once, right? So you only get to sell the asset one time. So just make sure you're getting the right deal and make sure that you, there's, you know, no stone unturned, so to speak. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Looking to ramp up deal flow for your minerals and non-op ground game? Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has closed on over 120 deals, totaling $110 million in value, with deal sizes ranging from 50 k upwards of $5 million. Whether you're looking for white space, permit, duck, PDP, AFE, or wellbore-only deals, the Texas Mineral Company has got you covered. For more information on how to source deal flow from the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. And by the way, so like in seller beware, I agree with that, but just slightly in defense of minerals buyers out there oh, in sure. regards to suspense payments, it's really difficult to actually identify that. Now, permits, For all sure. that stuff, yeah. if you're a seller, you can kind of go out and you can identify that as do the buyers. And so right. getting educated on that is really important. But a lot of times suspense payments is, you know, unless you have some sort of inside line to the operator and yep. the accounting department, yeah. there's no way to know about that. So so sure. that's very much the responsibility of a seller to not leave value on the table. A hundred percent. I totally yeah. agree with that. And I, I certainly don't want it to seem like I uh, am being adversarial towards the, the mineral buyers because the ones that I specifically think of that walk the line of ethical behavior and buying stuff with people from their own monies are almost always people who have that inside information of, you know, their sister happens to work at, you know, the division order department at this operator and, you know, or, you know, 
it's it's rarely people that are above board that do that. But, you know, we've all heard stories of people that target that stuff, right? And uh, it's just a, a part and parcel. But I, I want to go back to one of the things you mentioned earlier that is a big part of the reason that I got into the mineral management space as a part of my business, which is uh, the fee structure concept that you talked about. You know, I, I think that that is a, a big part of the upside for people in our in in my line of work is to they want to get the a portfolio of clients who can be put onto autopilot and just generate those revenues and that is oftentimes what a lot of you know not to besmirch the good name of my you know people who are in this line of work but a lot of the banks and a lot of those larger institutions like you said that's the that's their methodology because the mineral management is one of the trust services that they offer um, so they are handling trusts that are in all kinds of different fields um, and the mineral space is one of them and so they are they want it's like a it's almost like a, a most SaaS providers right like you don't want to have to change it you don't want to have to do work because every hour you spend working on it lowers your value per hour of, of revenue your ROI right so they're like like you said there's this motivation to put it on autopilot and not have to do any work and just let the checks come in passively and you know frankly they're they're so large these five six eight percent fees can be really significant and we felt like there was a real need for individuals that were in the lower income level um, with the royalties that they you know they could not justify eating those large fee percentages and could not justify those minimums because most service providers also have like a minimum threshold right it's not just a six percent or whatever percent cut there's a minimum you know x number of dollars six yeah, percent or yeah. x amount flat yeah exactly exactly and so we felt that that was you know if you're making hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year in your passive royalties you can't justify paying somebody sixty thousand dollars to manage your assets and so again one of the things i have all kinds of you know west texas catchphrases but one of the things i say is is the juice worth the squeeze right like when people come to me and they have questions and they say i need to know i need to know my title on this i'm like okay why you know they're like well because i listened to a podcast or i read an article or i went to a seminar and they said that you have to know what you own i'm like yeah dude but you make $300 a month like you're going to you're going to spend $10,000 you know running title that'll never pay out like don't waste it's a bad business and and that's the part of it is changing the mindset for a lot of private mineral owners that are not what i call institutional owners and just explain to them like this is a business you are running a business and so you have to make business decisions on you know your expenditures associated with the revenues and you know also mineral owners generally speaking are you know they're passengers along the ride once you sign that oil and gas lease you just kind of have to go with uh, the operator and 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 hope that they develop it timely that that works for you so you can't unless you're acquiring more assets you can't very easily generate additional revenues so you have to be more of a, a cost conscious and associate you know focus your attention on minimizing your expenditures so again it's it's not that it's not worth doing but you just I want to make sure it, why are we doing this task to justify the cost associated with it yeah so it sounds like you're really kind of sitting down and personalizing the approach and saying let me understand your portfolio what do you own what do you make right. and then you know what's your do you want to sell do you want to manage it pass it to your kids whatever mm-hmm. but then say hey 
hey, this is not a cookie cutter solution. You know, this is what makes sense to your family given all these these concepts or, or these factors. That's okay. right. Yeah. And and we we structure our fees such that I tell my clients all the time, like, how do you want me to make money? Like, I don't care. I'm super flexible about it. We have some that are on an hourly basis. We have some that are just on a flat annual fee basis. We have some that are tied to performance. Again, that, you know, I'm a huge believer that being self-employed is a fancy word for unemployed, right? So like I can do whatever I need to do to make this <laughs> thing go. I just, you know, that that mortgage has to get paid every month on my side too. JP Morgan waits for no man, right? Like I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get them taken care of. So, but it just depends if somebody's wanting to sell their asset, like, hey, let me do a value add for you and I'll get a commission based on bringing additional buyers to the table. Sweet, that's fine. Like you, you want, most of my clients like knowing exactly what the fee is gonna be. So they just go on an annual locked in flat flat rate. And it's, you just have us as a, your oil executive that manages your stuff. And we do all the things and we don't worry about the, again, part of it is the charitable side of it because most of our clients are, you know, uh, individual owners and they're, it feels good to help them out. They're really grateful. They, but you know, so I'm not worried about my ROI, how many hours I spend on this or that kind of stuff. You know, we're small enough that's like, I'm friends with all my clients. I like working with them. And that was one of my big things when I, you know, went on my own and started doing my thing is like, I just, I just don't want to work with a-holes, man. Like I just like to work with people that are nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can echo that. I remember in the beginning of my career, you're hungry. And I was, all, I've always been kind of biz dev sales oriented. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning you you kind of, I need to make my sales book as big as it can work with everyone. And then over time you realize, yeah, I, I don't have to work with the slimy guys and the unethical people. And I, I can really target people that A, are good clients and B, are good people. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy spending time with them. And now friendships are born and you travel together and you hang out on the weekends and barbecues with family. And that yeah. makes it more fun because we work a lot of hours. So right. I, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer that the lines are blurred. I don't yeah. separate personal and business. It's all it's my life, right? Yeah. It's all together. So I, t- I, I totally agree. I am a firm believer that it is easy to make a lot of money in the oil and gas business. You do not have to be unethical. You do not have to press the boundaries. You do not have to, you know, steal stuff from, you know, you know, swindling little old ladies, you know, at the courthouse steps, you know, having them sign this document, you know, uh, snidely whiplash, you know, waxing his like evil mustache kind of stuff, right? Like you don't have to do that. Like you can be a good person, you can be helpful and you can be very successful doing that. I, I'm a huge believer in that. And it's, it's nice to be able to work with people who agree with that and can, you know, oh, well, I like working with you and I'm going to introduce you to this other person who I like working with. And generally it, it works out well long-term that way. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So I'd like to get into kind of these strategic uh, discussions you have with uh, minerals and landowners. Hey, you're preparing for a sale and I'd like to go through that. And hey, you have a really diversified and scattered portfolio or you're concentrated. Just I have a bunch of different can scenarios I'd like to walk through. But before that, yeah. you know, we, we kind of open up this transition to, you know, minerals management, adding value and differentiating. And like I said, there's a lot of folks who believe there's a disruption to a better way to do it than kind of the, the way it's been done. Walk through all the different things that are not quote unquote passive, that active management adds to the bottom line. And I'm opening the floor for you to talk about things beyond minerals. If it's leasehold with renewables, with water, any type of midstream infrastructure, just farming, like the the, the floor is open to explore all that, but just walk through all the 
just so, you know, those listening can kind of open their eyes to all the different, you know, the, the bundle of sticks of value that is in your minerals and, and your land ownership, right? Sure. Okay, perfect. So the first thing that can be a major value add in my mind is, and again, this is anecdotal and general because so many times clients come to me and it is the same story. You know, grandpa was a moonshiner who, you know, traded mineral rights for, you know, the company store or whatever that, you know, he worked for the railroad and he traveled around and he bought stuff all over the place. And he was part of the silent generation. So he never told my parents anything about it. And then my parents didn't tell me anything about it. And now I'm the steward and I just get checks and I don't know what we own. I don't know where anything is, all that stuff. Right. Um, So first off is, you know, the first thing I always tell is just search for unclaimed property, right? Like that is the lowest of the low hanging fruit that might seem very simple and like, you know, just rudimentary. But I find so many clients have unclaimed property in the different states that they just did not know that they were entitled to assets there. What do you walk me through? Sorry for the ignorant question. I'm not a landman. That's okay. Unclaimed property. You own, is this unleased? No. Oh, okay. Perfect. All right, cool. I'll zoom out. So let's say for instance, you own minerals in Texas and they, you never signed your division order. So in Texas, uh, operators have the right to withhold revenues until you execute a division order that complies with the Texas natural resources code. Okay. Um, They will always send you their division order form. And I always recommend don't sign their form, look it over because there might be some additional clauses that they are putting on there. So you want to, you know, just make sure you sign one that complies with the code, right? Well, let's say grandpa never signed his division order in 1975. Well, those funds have just been suspended. And eventually after a certain period of time, based on the state, they turn those monies over to the state and it's called this cheated, right? And so the funds are then given to the state of Texas and the state of Texas becomes the steward for those assets, those monies. And then you go in and you type your name into the website. It's I think it's claimittexas.org, I think is the one for Texas, but every state has their own version of this. And you contact the state, you look your name up, you say, oh my gosh, I see Jimmy Wright here is entitled to, you know, $300 of these, you know, and there's seven different operators. You're like, okay, the cool, that's $2,100 of money that I'm owed that I didn't know I was owed. So that is just super low hanging fruit that you can go in and be a value add that if you are a completely passive manager who does not even do that level, you might have funds that you are owed to start with. So that can be some real easy ROI. And I have clients that we do that in, you know, I live, uh, let's say I live in Arizona and my minerals are in Oklahoma. And so I, so then we hired J-Dub to go do this for us. Cool. Well, J-Dub looks in both Arizona and Oklahoma because sometimes the operator reports it where the assets are located and sometimes it's reported at the last known mailing address. So if your predecessor, parent, grandparent moved around a lot, you might have to look at multiple states because that might be where, you know, when they used to live in New Hampshire, that was the last known address. So the state of New Hampshire is holding those funds or whatever. And again, these are these are not generally super huge, you know, funds, but they can be, I mean, I have one client who I'm working with 
with right now who they have over 80 of these parcels that we are in the process of getting it, you know, cleared up. So that's that's an example of, of an active management uh, asset, you know, evaluation that could bring some, some value. Uh, one of the other things uh, we always recommend is when you, you know, obviously understanding enough when you receive a division order to see if your uh, NRI is correct, basically knowing how to evaluate your decimals. You know, these decimals may seem, oh, well, that's close enough or that's very similar or I don't know any better. It but matters. It matters, man. Hundreds that's, of millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And uh, so that's that's a big piece of it. You know, you can get into some really sophisticated technological basis uh, doing some uh, some audits to evaluate your NRI revenues associated with the production that comes is reported to the Railroad Commission and say, look, you paid me uh, for 10,000 barrels of production, but you reported to the Railroad Commission 11,000 barrels of production. So where's my extra thousand dollars worth of production? So there are technologies in place and different uh, service providers that we work with that do that kind of, a, of an audit. Also, you know, protesting your property taxes can be another real value add to your bottom line as an active manager because many counties do not have, in my opinion, they don't they don't take into account the decline curves properly. Uh, they just kind of do a one-time snapshot evaluation of the of the properties. And so you can go in and say, hey, look, that production that you're you know taxing me on was from three years ago and the production levels have totally fallen off a cliff because as we all know, the you know the, the decline curve on these horizontal wells is so steep that my property value has not, you know, has not maintained or increased in value when those uh, hydrocarbons have been depleted. So that's another, you know, kind of value add that you can bring into it. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy, so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own oil and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who since 1929 has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has been a leading ground game broker for minerals and non-op deals, closing over 120 transactions across the Permian, Scoop Stack, Haynesville, Bakken, Powder River Basin, DJ, and Eagleford. With deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million and 1.5 NRAs upwards of 3,500 NRAs, the Texas Mineral Company can be flexible on where and how they can source your deal flow. For more information on how your team can work with the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportunes Podcast E2B Energy to Business on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, 
please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Yeah, that that came on my radar about two to three years ago. I, I developed a really good relationship with Merit Advisors in Dallas. They mm-hmm. exclusively focus on property tax advisory and they've been doing it for a very long time. And so I've kind of understood from a mineral perspective, West Virginia, Arkansas, Texas are the states where, in Kansas, if you own minerals and they're producing, those, those affluent and property taxes get passed down directly to the mineral owner versus through the operator. And you can proactively contest them just like your house. And there's a lot of money that can be left on the table. And the, the bigger and more complex your portfolio is, the harder it is to really unlock that. So you need someone who really understands that world. It's, you know, at the local county level and the different, you know, knowing the different tax offices and timelines and all that stuff that just seems like a headache just to even think about it. Right. Yeah, these are all the different pieces of the pie, right? That can add yep. up incrementally. Yes. So keep, keep going. Yeah, for sure. So, so another kind of value add is again getting your arms around what all you own and then proactively seeking out a a partner to lease those assets right you don't have to just sit back and wait for a landman to call you if you know where all your stuff is you can do research and find out that say oh well this is kind of on the the front edge of of this new play and i see the other people who have been taking leases in and around my assets well let me contact them and say hey we own this many net mineral acres in this section i see you've leased in the section next door, I'd like to contact you to see if you'd like to lease it. Now, let, uh, let me ask you this. In your experience as a landman, how often at, when you're working with Energen and Callan, right? How often are mill owners proactive versus you kind of, you know, knocking on the door constantly to put leases together? Because I, I would imagine it's it's really less common. Yeah, it's and incredibly so, rare. Yeah, yeah. So if you have a willing landowner, then that that's going to be a better relationship out of the out of the gate, right? A hundred percent. And I would say the only the only things I can only times I can remember this happening would be if we were leasing one party and their cousin also owned in the asset. And so they notified their cousin and then the cousin contacted us before we contacted them. Um, it's incredibly rare for it to just be a cold call kind of a approach. But, you know, we've had some success uh, doing this with clients. And it, it, again, it's it, it just depends on where your asset are located and who the group is, you know, again, not to, not to besmirch the good name of the people that are in my industry, right. Uh, the oil and gas space, but you know, most field landmen who are the people doing the calling have a very finite amount of authority and have a very finite amount of opportunities to be creative and look for these you know ways to add value because they're being told specifically by their broker exactly what to do. And that broker is being told ex- 
exactly what to do by their clients. And so, um, you know, that's why almost all the time when you're negotiating, that landman is going to have very limited authority to agree to terms on those leases. They're going to say, well, I have to take it back to the client to ask if they can, if they'll take this, right? So oftentimes being proactive and knowing who the end client is going to be and being able to contact that operator directly is a real, real helpful piece of the puzzle also. So, you know, it's just, we've had some good opportunities to do that with some stuff in kind of the Northern portions of the Permian Basin, uh, the Midland Basin that are getting developed up into Borden County and those areas, um, same, this exact kind of concept where we said, Hey, you know, you guys, do you want to go ahead and lock this down? It's two miles North of where you're looking right now, but in six months that, you know, new wells come in and that edge changes. And then, you know, we'll lease it to you now for X, but it's going to be five times that maybe in six months. So you can, you can have some value add in that way. Awesome. And then keep going down the list. This, this is great. Well, other, yeah. other things. You, you yeah, sure. Parties. So um, again, if you own, if you own surface as well, you know, obviously material sales, caliche, water are huge industries uh, that you should be very much familiar with if you're in that space. Pipeline, right-of-ways, easements, saltwater disposal wells, brine water facility stations, all those things can be value-add. You know, if you own property that's in this really remote area that, you know, it's kind of no man's land, no one would think it's worth anything, but it happens to be right in the middle of the main corridor of, you know, you know, you I've, I have found opportunities to negotiate with pipeline companies that said, hey, look, we'll, we'll take less per rod, which is the measure you know, if for people, listeners who aren't familiar with it, a rod is a measure of length, um, almost like a foot or a meter, right? It's a, that's just the industry uses rods. And uh, the I'll, I'll charge you less per rod if you put more of your pipeline on my property based on the shape. You, and so that pipeline right away agent is really excited because their their price per unit is less. And it's like, well, put more of them on me. So I end up clearing more money than than you going around me and going across my neighbor. And that can totally change the direction of the pipeline. So don't just be short-sighted with the negotiations and say, I've got to get maximum price per per rod on my pipeline easements. Like, no, I'll take less if you'll put, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't care if you pay me more per unit, if you're going to end up paying me more total overall, because I'm going to have a pipe going through my land there. So, you know, unless I have some real specific structural reason that I don't want it there, it's probably best to capitalize and get more of it on you to, to have a, a, a larger total amount of money. And then and then depending on what kind of size landowner you are, you know, the more pipe you have, the more right away, all that, it gives yeah. you a leg up in negotiations with operators on certain things, right? For sure. And you know, you know, generally speaking, that that space you get paid by the rod and you get paid by the size of the pipeline and the type of pipeline you're putting in. So an eight inch would pay you different than a four inch. However, the amount of surface impacted isn't that much different. And the amount of impact to your ability to do your, whatever you do with that surface is not going to be significantly different. You, you still can't build a house or a barn on top of it, whether it's a four inch line or an eight inch line. So th- there's a lot of space. There's a lot of companies, there are publicly traded groups that own these assets out there and l- large, large, large landowners that have entire divisions that are focused on water sales and uh, surface damages and pipeline right 
driveways and easements. So yeah, it's, it can be huge, huge money. Excellent. And then anything else before we jump into some of the different scenarios? Uh, no, you know, uh, again, there's, there's always stuff in the renewable space, uh, but that is always, it's going to be real fact dependent. I always encourage people to, if you get into that world, get, you know, get counsel that's really focused and knowledgeable about it. You know, uh, you're not going to get the same kind of deal on a, you know, wind farm or a solar panel lease that you are on an oil and gas gas lease. So you're not going to get a quarter royalty <laughs> on your wind farm lease. Uh, you know, just understand that you need to have people that live and work in that space to know what, what type of protections to put in place for you. Sure. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, that was, uh, that was great. Super, sure. super interesting. I learned some stuff there. Let's okay. Scenario one. So you're working with a client and they said, Hey, Jimmy, we'd like to entertain selling our minerals. Perfect. Walk me through kind of the checklist of things you want to make sure they're aware of and okay you know, context is important so you already mentioned yep. are you making 300 bucks a month are you making thirty thousand a month that that all yep. matters and what what is justifiable but what are what are some certain things you try to get them to start thinking about yeah so the first thing i ask them is why are you wanting to sell uh what's your motivator right and there's all kinds of reasons you know my nephew's in prison and i gotta pay his bail uh my i i no longer you know want the sins of my father and being involved in the dirty oil business so i want to sell it off. My kid's going to college. You know, I don't have anybody to leave it to. There's all kinds of reasons, right? So that's my first question, because depending on what that reasoning is, we can help them come up with a good solution to, to that, that issue, right? Well, I don't want to uh, leave it to my kids and it be a burden on them. Okay, great. So if that's the only reason that maybe selling isn't the right answer, maybe the right answer is finding a good solution to manage it for your kids because your kids might be mad that you sold it without clearing it with them, right? So there's a lot of these kind of like mediator, family counselor kind of conversations we have to ask because, you know, you know, good intentions are to do this thing, but it ends up being not what the the perceived uh, recipient really wanted. So that's my first question is always like, hey, great. That's fantastic. Why do you want to sell it? Okay. We come up with a reason. We say, okay. What, then the next question I ask is what's your timeline, right? Because we have people who are, I want to sell it yesterday. I have to have it. We need to, we need to move this move super quickly. Or, you know, sometime in the next four years, I'd like to move it off of my portfolio, right? Because those go to different kinds of buyers and they're going to be different kinds of prices because it dovetails into our next thing that we checklist is what does your portfolio of assets look like? Do you even know what all you own? You know, it's going to be super easy for us to find a buyer, you know, your listeners would all be tripping over themselves if I was like, oh, I've got 640 acres in Midland County, you know, with, you know, 15 new permits on top of it. Would anybody want that? Yeah, of course, everybody wants that, right? But if I say, and also part of the portfolio is they got a, a three acre parcel in far Northwest, you know, Wyoming, and they've got a, a 20 acre parcel in Eastern Illinois, and they've got uh, seven acres in Southern Mississippi, and, 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 and you start talking about this giant portfolio, and 
And those are totally different buyers that are willing to take all of that because, you know, again, talk to my clients. I say, look, you don't want to sell off your treasures and just be left with your trash because then you're going to have the same amount of problems with no revenue coming in. If you've got this portfolio of undesirable mineral interests that are just scattered across the country. So that's, that's been a piece of the puzzle. That's been one of the things we've really targeted and focused in on is partnering and figuring out a way to solve that problem for folks. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there is a buyer class that's emerged to fill that need. I think, you know, Haymaker comes to mind, right? They've said, we're, we're focused on core areas, but if there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of all over, we'll take it. Right. Yep. And, you know, not speaking about Haymaker specifically in this scenario, but, you know, some groups, let's just say they have family office funds where they've raised capital, third party capital, then they have their own balance sheet. Sometimes they, they wear, they buy the scattered stuff on the family's balance sheet, the fund takes the meat, and that's a way to take about it. But others by mandate can't touch it. And right. so that's kind of an interesting conundrum for these folks who have scattered portfolios. And, yeah. you know, the way Blackstone built its portfolios and Cornerstone and Kimball and, you know, folks like that over the years, where it's just like checkerboard, all, you know, 40 states, that's not really the way institutional portfolios are being built right now, especially if they're built to exit right. like private equity. So yeah. having, you know, some stewardship around that with someone who understands the space is definitely valuable. I can see it. Right. And that's frankly, we, we've started a fund to do just that because we mm. found that there, it was, I'm a, I'm a huge believer of, yeah, there can be other people like that do the things and I'm happy to partner up with them. But like, it's also a, well, if we can't find anybody that has that, we'll just build the mousetrap ourselves. Right. Like, because we have groups that will, they are under massive amounts of pressure to deploy capital under their partners to, in my opinion, seriously overpay for some of these assets in these different parts of the Delaware Basin or the Midland Basin or the Eagleford or the Haynesville or, you know, whatever their flavor of focus is, they are getting a lot of pressure to perform and show that they can close deals. And when they find somebody who's willing to sell, but the only thing that's holding them back is they've got this, you know, I can pay you $5 million for this one asset, but you've got this $100,000 worth of other stuff that's scattered all around the world that is keeping this deal from happening. Like there has to be a mechanism that, and so that was what we said was like, look, we'll just tag team with you and we'll, yeah, we'll buy that other stuff and we'll, we'll pay the hundred thousand to buy it. And you guys pay the five million to get the thing you really wanted. And there you go. And uh, it's, I mean, it's super easy. Like we don't, I mean, we're super, (laughs) I mean, we're like the most like shoot from the hip, like, okay, cool. Yeah, we'll take it. Like those micro parcels, we almost never like, I mean, there's almost never anything that causes us problems because they're such small interests that we don't have to go through all the hurdles that our institutional investor types want to, you know, oh, I've got to get a decline curve analysis and do an engineering study and, you know, get full-blown title run on it. I'm like, dude, it pays you $300 a month. Like, give the guy $5,000 and move on. Like, whatever. (laughs) Which, by the way, like, a different way to look at that or different structure, like partnership structure that happens in the space is stuff that's bundled with non-op. Uh-huh. So this is why I started to focus on non-op about a year and a half ago. So I started to realize, oh, there's deals with leasehold or with AFEs or something attached to it. And again, the seller wants to sell, but mm-hmm. this is a minerals fund set up to buy minerals and they can't touch working interest. Yep. When they raise funds with their LPs, it's all about you know passive real asset, inflation hedge, like all yep. that stuff. Now you don't want working interest exposure. So I saw non-op companies and minerals companies banding up to take these deals down. And, and a light bulb went off and said, 
oh God, there's so many synergies in this space. And I started getting minerals owners reach out to me and say, hey, by the way, working on this deal, it's got some stuff in Oklahoma that's non-op. Who do I talk to on the non-op side? And I was like, I position myself to be the guy to answer that question. Yeah. And I don't have those answers on the non-op side, so I need to get my shit together. Yeah. That's why <laughs> I started doing non-op content and non-op networking. And now it's become yeah. a very strong pillar in my firm. But that's just an example. So you're talking about, you know, kind of cleaning up the peripheral stuff and setting up an investment vehicle for that. I think it's brilliant. There's a need for it. Yeah. We, one of the things we always like to say is we're, we're a janitor service. We just clean up the crap that land departments create and mineral ownership creates, right? right? Like there's all these weird little niche things and anybody who says they're an expert in all of it, they're lying to you because there's no way you know how to be a, a, a non-op wellbore player in the Bakken and also uh, a mineral evaluator in Michigan and also a, you know, uh, a tax expert in property taxes in South Texas. You know what I mean? Like there's just too mm-hmm. much, there's too much volume of stuff. And so having a network of people that can help you with those things and looking at, okay, what's an interesting way and what's our long-term plan? And if you're, if you, if, you know, if you have a vision of, okay, I want to just aggregate and own, and I'm not worried about the long-term exit. And I've cleared that with my investors and my partners, and we're all on the same page of that. It really opens you up to some really exciting stuff because you can come in and be like, oh yeah, this person owns these minerals that throw off cash flow. And it's like, oh great. And like, well, it's in Florida. And you're like, well, who the hell is going to buy these minerals? I mean, nobody even know. Well, somebody's getting paid royalties on their minerals that are produced there. And so like, if you're buying it on a cash flow multiple and you're, you know, buying it at, you know, a 24 month payout, like, like who cares where the checks are coming from, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just ROI. It's And so having that flexibility um, is really, really powerful. And so that's, I love doing that with partners who just say, hey, we've got this problem. Here's the issue that we're dealing with. How do we fix that? And it's like, okay, well, let's put together some money to be your partner and, you know, help help clean that mess up for you. No, I, I love that. It also, I, yeah, I'm forgetting who it was, but not too long ago, someone was talking about Florida and they're like, yeah, there's some monster wells. <laughs> yeah. That and I was like, what in the hell? Like, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there are places like that and there are all kinds of things that you're like, you know, uh, some of these wells and some of these places that you're like, okay, yeah, it's, it's hype. You know, there's some, some spots kind of, you know, West of us here in central Texas that are, you know, heavy oil. Like there's like one section that produces, but it's the only thing that whole County that produces. And it's like, you know, no one's blasting those people with a dozen letters every week to try to buy those minerals. So it's opportunity if you're contrarian to say like, you know, yeah, if you own stuff in Loving County and Reeves County and Pecos County or Midland and Martin County, yeah, you're getting dozens of letters every week, right? And that's where the private invest private investors are are focusing that it's kind of the last toehold whenever things shrunk down in 2020. But you know, if you're buying cash flow, like it kind of doesn't matter where that is. So there's opportunities to to buy stuff that's not as aggressively sought after. So that's you know, again, a, a cool play. Listen, I, I think rolling up conventional royalties is super interesting. Like you said, it's less competitive. The challenge is scalability. So if someone's yeah. out there and they've raised a big slug of capital, they're looking at private equity returns, probably not the play because it's just really yeah. hard to deploy tens of millions, 50 plus right. million uh, of capital around that. But, you know, you can buy some really good assets and then, you know, some of them might be water flooded where production increases, uh, which is, you know, backwards 
words of, of shale. And then you got to think about in the shale boom, how really just everyone ran away from conventional and went towards unconventional. And now there's been a decade of technology innovation. We can go back to these conventional reservoirs and really do some pretty cool stuff in terms of increasing production. So now you're going to get a, a lift on you know production in these in these conventional assets. You own royalties under them. It's not bad, right? So anyways, right. that's um, neither here nor there. But yeah. well, on, on the topic of selling, walk me through, and I'm sure you're dealing with a spectrum of clients in, in regards to how educated they are and sophisticated they are with minerals. But what are the common questions you get? What are their biggest fears? Because I think part of what you're doing, you know, part of what a good broker does is really just mediate. Like you said, you're mediating families. So you're mediating both sides and trying to get people to come to the middle to transact. So would you say there are some some misconceptions out there, some concerns um, that may not necessarily be true, or some of them are very much indeed valid and you work with them to navigate those? Just walk through all of it yeah. um, in the headspace of a minerals owner when they want to sell. Sure. So, you know, when I think of like their big picture concerns, um, you know, inevitably you have tire kickers who are like, they, they say they want to sell and they actually really don't. They just want to have their board and they want something to do. And they want something to talk about and it's fun and interesting. They want to be a horse trader kind of a person, right? So there's always that. But, you know, with bona fide sellers, generally, you know, the biggest concerns is, am I getting a fair price? Um, and then second after that is, you know, how how simple will this be to close? Um, and that's always the thing that I, I always talk to clients about is like, look, you might have somebody who's willing to pay you more money, but if they're going to send you a, a 10 page LOI that is going to be super and they're going to ham and haw and nitpick every last little title defect problem and everything and it ends up taking you, you know, three months to close the deal. And like, legal fees, right? And legal fees and all the things. Is it worth it as opposed to taking the deal that's slightly less cash, but it's, you know, Jimmy knows the guy and he's going to buy it from you like because you sent him check stubs, right? Like those are two opposite ends of the... So so we talked through that, like what's the, you know, how simple is it going to be to close? One of the other big things they talk about is tax implications. So we want to talk about whether we're going to be doing a, a, a 1031 exchange, um, you know, what what can we do or what do we need to do on the front end to get this established right to properly minimize tax implications? Um, and then randomly, this is a thing that has come up a couple of times, which is kind of interesting that I don't think many people know is uh, a lot of my buyers want to know who the end owner is going to be. Um, and so they want to know like... And, who, and why do they care? Well, uh, anecdotally, I have one client who um, they are very concerned about foreign entity ownership of American resources. Got it. Uh, yep. So that was a thing was who is the, you know, is this going to be owned? And again, we we had an issue where I was like, well, the, one of these investors is Canadian. And so that was a, kind of a thing we had to get around. And I was like, okay, well, okay. Which typically, I mean, you know, not to say anything kind of out of line politically in political yeah. correctness or anything, but typically you're you're worried about if, if it's an adversary to the U.S. Is, is that kind of money going to be owning it? And there's the right. patriotism and the pride yeah. of, you know, this is in my family for, for three generations and my right. grandfather yes. fought in the war and now 100%. these people are buying the minerals and he's going to be, you know, you know, mad at me in heaven, all that stuff. Right. right. So yeah. I, I get it. Yeah. Get it. Um, and then another thing is um, because this is such a unregulated space um, conceptually, the, there's no real clear market, uh, you know, like the, the PLS was the group that tried to have like a multiple listing service concept. Right. Yeah. That was my first job out of college. Ronnie was nice. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so conceptually, like these folks don't know if, if, 
if the person who's buying it is going to pay them $400,000 and do a simultaneous close to somebody else for $900,000 and that other party closed for half a million bucks. So, so that's, that's, that's a part of it that goes with the fair value is who's going to be the end owner, not, Hey, this is part of an aggregator. Who's going to be bundling this up and selling it for a bigger, you know, piece. It's just a, okay, am I, who's going to be owning this, you know, eventually. And, you know, the reality is most of these things are going to eventually funnel to, you know, a half a dozen, you know, groups that really run the world in the back background that, you know, uh, institutional investors are going to be, you know, a, a, a couple things on that for any minerals owners trying to sell that are listening, you know, in a perfect world, yeah, you sell the ultimate empire, but it's not always that clean because the development stage and the fun life and the size and the bandwidth to look at deals, it just doesn't always work out with that. So the daisy chain of buyers kind of ground floor upwards is needed to a certain extent. Right. But also there are opportunities to cut out middlemen and go direct and, and get a better price. So that does exist. So it's kind of both scenarios that, you know, I sell assets. That's what I kind of pride myself on is I'm going to go to the folks that are good cost of capital, don't have a ground game and need, you know, need to buy a portfolio in this fashion. Right. right. But, you know, I think um, it, it's interesting. It's human psychology, right? So basic human psychology is I have more pain when you take something away from me versus the pleasure I get from getting that same amount. So let's just say yeah. if you had 500,000, someone steals it from you, it's worse than if if you you thought you were going to make 500,000 and then you didn't make it right? right so the theoretically it shouldn't really matter if someone comes to you and says jimmy my kids going to college and i need to sell some of asset for 200 grand and you know and then my kids taken care of and you go okay at this group they want to pay 200 grand if they then flip it and they make a little bit of money and they sell for 350 you really shouldn't care cuz you said your number was 2 right right yep but that's just not the way it works and you know some of the some of this is emotional, the, the yes. selling aspect. And so right. it, it's just interesting to kind of talk all this through because I've never been on the front lines buying minerals direct. But I always think, you know, what are the nuances that get deals done over the line when someone calls you over a three year period and there's right. 30 other firms calling? And these are the little intricacies that matter, right? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, again, you, you hit the nail on the head that there's a lot of the psychological issues that go into this that are, you know, uh tactics that get used in negotiations and and ways that you, you know, make sure you're on the same page with your client, make sure that you're getting them the best deal you can, uh, make sure that the, you know, it's all above board and everybody knows, you know, what's going on and how it's going to work. And, you know, then if everybody's okay with it, then it's good to go. And you have to be prepared for, for a deal to fall apart for all kinds of weird reasons. And uh, that's, you know, again, it goes back to what I said earlier, like, you know, my kids got to eat too. So if I'm, how do you want me to make money on this thing? And mm. I always go to clients and say like, well, what's the best way that you feel like I'm bringing you value and, you know, handling stuff so you don't have to worry about it. And then they tell me, you know, what their fears are and their concerns are. And I say, okay, cool. Well, then that helps me know this one random deal. I can take it to this person or don't take it to that person or whatever, because I know that this is a that personality or that issue they're dealing with. No, I think that's smart. You know, some people, you know, companies, for instance, some owners prefer to pay salaries. Others yeah. want you to eat what you kill. Yep. And me personally, I prefer to make zero and have unlimited upside versus even if all things equal, you end up making the same money at the end of the day. I like to be aligned, right? So mm-hmm. aligning yourself with the psychology of your client just means the relationship's going to be better. 
Um, What about the generational wealth transfer? This is an interesting topic that start. I kind of hypothesized a year or two ago that, all right, you know, the ground game is competitive. It's a quote unquote knife fight, especially in the Permian. Mm -hmm. More and more groups every day. Yeah. What's left? Uh Oh, are there no minerals left? Like this is kind of like, I think any minerals I hear is kind of rolled over in the middle of the night and had a nightmare and be like, there's no minerals left. But you always (laughs) say, no, no, there still is. There still is. But the interesting dynamic is the never sellers that we've all called a gazillion times that said, stop calling me, lose my number. I'm never selling. They are going to pass away at some point in the future, two years, five years, 10 years, whatever it is. And a lot of this is baby boomer generation I'm talking about. Their estates and their wealth are going to be transferred to younger generations. And part of that, I don't know, I think the number from the Fed was like 80 trillion or something in assets. Part of those are minerals estates. And now the never sellers are going to cut those up into a dozen heirs. Yep. And some of those might be sellers now. And now it's more fragmented. So consolidation is is really the value add that the mineral space is bringing at a high level. And that becomes super interesting. And I was talking to um, a new fund that's trying to raise capital um, out in the Haynesville and they were running me through their deck. And, you know, they had one of their shticks was we've been doing land brokerage in this area, these, these various, these counties for 30 years. And yeah. so we have relationships that are decades long and we're starting to see ownership change hand and it's a completely different dynamic yep. and there's opportunities to buy and that's super interesting so I'm starting to see it play out with firsthand feedback have you started to see that in your clientele like family planning and, and all that yep. and dealing with the kids and it's a totally different conversation than dealing with the parents or the grandparents right 100% and you have so I think there's a large move to family entities moving it into LLCs and LPs and those types of um, to minimize the headache, you know, because as it becomes splintered, you're always worried about one cousin selling their part off and it screwing up the deal for everybody else. So they agreed to really low terms and, you know, cause issues. And so there's this move to, to, to get it all com- combined in one singular uh, entity. Um, I think that generationally and culturally, we, we're dealing with a lot of these changes. Uh, you know, folks are more, seem more open to discuss money and assets than historical generations have been. Um, I think, you know, you can go on TikTok and watch videos of people being in great detail, exactly how much money they make. Uh, you know, my, I'm, I'm personally a lot more open about it than most of my friends and family are because I'm a believer in open information really helps you all out. Um, whereas even my, you know, my parents were just very like, Oh my God, you don't ever ask anybody how much money they make or what money is because it was, it was taboo. Right. So I think that's changing a little bit as well. And I think, you know, there's there's something to be said for, you know, I forget what the term is, but generally, you know, three generations. Uh, Once you get to a generation of the owner does not have a relationship with the person who originally purchased the assets, then it just simply turns into a there's no emotional connection to it. Right. If your great grandfather was the one who bought that ranch and settled it and you never knew him, you never met him, uh, then you're going to be more inclined to sell it just simply as a, you know, it's just a car or it's just a plane or it's just a, a boat. It's just a thing, right? It's just a asset that gives you money each month. You don't have emotional connection to it. Again, this is not always the case, but, you know, generally when it was, well, I remember my dad told me when he was, you know, coming here to this area and he bought this and he put this farmland together and, you know, having that emotional stories with it, I think is a big piece of it. So as it moves forward generationally, you know, new owners and successors are more 
more inclined to to divest for sure because they just see it as well. I get paid, you know, I get paid five thousand dollars a month, or this person's going to offer me, you know, the amount of money that it would take me eight years to get. Well, I'll just take the cash and run, and I don't have to worry about government impact. I don't have to worry about you know uh, climate change issues. I don't have to worry about you know any of those types of unknowns that are outside of my wheelhouse. I live in Rhode Island, and I just don't want to deal with it. You know, cool. This is it's like that old was that JG Wentworth. It's my money. I want it now. Kind of a, a, a perspective on it, right? And yeah. so I think that's going to happen as people become less uh, um, tied to the historical value. And so I, you know, I think that mineral buyers are going to really be able to, to benefit from that. And I think that mineral owners would be well served to have candid conversations with your children and your, you know, your family members about like, okay, what's our plan? Like, what do we want? What do you want? And don't make assumptions and kind of tear down those walls of communication to be able to, you know, have those candid conversations because maybe, you know, I have all kinds of clients that are, you know, siblings who are vehemently opposed um, about what they want to do with these assets. We have, we have uh, the next generation of never sellers and I don't want to own oil and gas assets. So what do those siblings do? How do they resolve that conflict? And it's a lot better to have that talk when mom and dad are still alive and talk a plan out and say like, okay, well, here's, you're going to buy my cut out and this is how we're going to find the fair market value. And if you want to own it, you can buy it from me and then I'm out and you you can have it the legacy forever or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, I always use the baseball innings analogy. I think we're in the early innings and, you know, the the sixth, seventh inning stretch are going to, this is some of the opportunity that's on the horizon, which if you're a minerals buyer out there, it's exciting that there's, you know, mm-hmm. some opportunity that will get unlocked. It just yep. takes time. So, yep. well, great. Well, um, Jimmy, this has been super fun. Uh, I'd love bouncing off you. I'm, I'm glad we connected. Yeah. Uh, can't wait to connect in person. I'd like to hand it over with one final question to close out the episode. And this is call it a, uh, you know, a message to really help minerals buyers out there. What are the biggest complaints or most common complaints you hear amongst your clients as it relates to interaction with minerals buyers? And on the other side of that, what are maybe some positive stories you've heard that maybe we can sure. reinforce certain behaviors? Let's right. close out with that. Uh, yeah. Like a goodwill message to this. For sure. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I, I certainly hope that the tone of the conversation has not been, uh, you know, uh, shit talking about mineral buyers by any stretch. Cause I, you know, I am one and I, you know, I believe that it's a critical piece of the, of, of the value chain, like you talked about earlier. Um, you know, I, I think that, some of the feedback I've gotten is, um, you know, oftentimes there's a lot of kind of uh, car salesman type of uh, high pressure tactics that get put into place. Um, and that can turn off mineral owners. Uh, on the other hand, I say, you know, I've also been in a situation where I was very passive and then they ended up signing a paperwork with one of those really tenacious, you know, car salesman type. They caught them on a day that they wanted to sell. So uh, that is anecdotally a, a complaint but it, you know, provides results to the end buyer. So um, I don't necessarily know that I would say stop doing that per se, but I would say that, you know, that is a a very common uh, misconception. I would also say, um, you know, personally, um, I don't like the fear-mongery approach to to convincing people to sell. The, well, you just never know what the government's going to come and do or, Mm. well, you know, commodity prices could fall tomorrow. Like, well, 
Yes, that is yeah, true. Taxes could go up to 50%. Yeah, just all that stuff. Got right. It. And it's like, okay, like, you know, because be, be thoughtful of who your sellers are, because these are a lot of elderly people oftentimes. And uh, these are folks who, you know, may be susceptible to some of these, you know, tactics that is not, you know, a very positive in my mind. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, being fair and honest about like, hey, look, we are, here's why we believe in the long-term upside of this. And uh, if you are a seller, here's what we can pay you for it. Um, I have found, you know, you know, historically sharing more of that information can endear you to those owners. And then when they do decide to sell and they can, might come back later and they say, well, I want to do business with you because you told me about those new permits that were coming on. And you told me not to, not to sell at that time because, you know, there's a tremendous amount of upside that was about to happen. And so I really appreciate that. So now I want to sell you my whole portfolio or my cousin wants to sell their stuff. And, you know, those, those types of long-term uh, relationships can really, you know, bear some fruit. Yeah. No, sounds authenticity is, is really what people yeah. are looking for and just not looking like you're only looking out for yourself. And then if there's a way over time to validate that through right. the example with the permits, uh, I think that that makes a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Well, good stuff, Jimmy. Thanks again for coming on. Looking forward to, uh, again, connecting in person. And yeah. I know there's going to be a lot of value extracted from this. So I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and then we'll be in touch. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate your time. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments, nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.